Well, we have been in a series in the book of Acts for a long time. And, and just like a long journey where your kids are like, are we there yet? Uh, we are almost to the end of, of our journey in the book of Acts. And, and here we're going to be in chapter 27 and 28 today. And we find our, our brother, the Apostle Paul, in a, another dangerous situation. He just always seems to get into trouble somehow. And uh, today we're going to look at a storm at sea and a shipwreck um, where his ship breaks apart. And it's just like, hasn't he gone through enough? Paul, I mean, he has, he has really, he's gone through the ringer. And today I think is probably the most dangerous thing we've seen him go through and so today we're going to look at this passage uh, in Acts 27, beginning of verse 1. We're going to go uh, through verse 16 of chapter 28. Uh, we're going to look at this passage in four different parts where God's, uh, we see God's provision on our journey, where we see God's promises in the storm, where we see God's presence in the shipwreck, and where we see God's purposes in our rescue. So this is a, another long passage. We've We've hit several of these, and so I'm just going to get right into it. I'm going to read Acts 27, and uh, it's on pages 936 and 937 if you're using one of the Bibles in the back there, and it will also be up on the screen. So let's read Acts chapter 27, beginning of verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was called which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. 
Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regime. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, as we have as we have seen before, it's, it's sometimes difficult to take these large chunks and, of story and see um, how they connect with our lives and how we can faithfully follow you through the things we're seeing here. But we trust that, uh, that this passage is your breathed out word, uh, that it is living and active and that you have a word for us today. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds as we're here together today, as we sit in submission and surrender to you, that you would reveal to us the places in our lives where we need to repent, where we need to be encouraged, where we need to be called into faithful obedience, where we need to follow you, Jesus. And we pray this because we know you hear us and because you, uh, you want good for us. Would you be glorified today through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just a little bit of a recap over the last several weeks and several chapters. We've seen the Apostle Paul, he's been arrested um, mainly because of a religious dispute with the Jews. They don't like that he is taking the news of Jesus to, to Gentiles, and so when he comes back to Jerusalem after one of his missionary journeys, uh, there's a riot. He is taken into custody by the Romans, and he is basically passed again and again through some kind of justice system that the Romans have in place, and he's been in prison for uh, over two years at this point with no resolution, uh, and, and as we saw last week, he makes an appeal to Caesar. It's his right as a Roman citizen to say, I want my case, I want what's... Uh, I want a trial before Caesar, and I can do that as a Roman citizen. So he makes that appeal, and that's what we're looking at today is Paul's journey to Rome. And as he makes his way to Rome, we see God's provision for him on this journey that he takes. He's a prisoner, but, but even as he's a prisoner, we see many glimpses of God's grace and care for Paul in, in this passage at the beginning of chapter 27. First, uh, we see that God provides companions for Paul. Uh, there, there is a we here, right? And, and Paul is not alone. We know that his old friend, Dr. Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, he is there with 
Paul. Uh, And that's why this account is written in such great detail, because Luke, who wrote this, he was there. He was on the boat. He was in the storm, and he was with Paul on his journey. And joining them is another Gentile Christian named Aristarchus. Uh, And Luke and Aristarchus, they probably posed as Paul's slaves uh, or his servants in order for them to be able to go along with him to Rome. And so uh, they, were, they were allowed to travel with him. And, and just think, doesn't it feel better to face something difficult with other people, right, who are alongside of you, who are with you, uh, who know the struggle you're in? I mean, it's suffering and difficulty, uh, whatever variation it takes, it's isolating enough, right, to be to be walking through something difficult that's out of your control, it feels isolating. And I think it's beautiful to see that God provides companions for Paul as he is going through this difficulty. Luke and Aristarchus, his brothers, with him. He gives him a we. uh, And that's a beautiful gift that God gives to him. Second, God provides Paul with, I guess we could call him a generous captor. Uh, Julius, who is the centurion of the Romans, uh, whose job it is to get Paul and these other prisoners to Rome. Uh, so, so we see this man, Julius, he treats Paul with kindness and with respect. He probably thinks, well, this guy is going to Caesar. He's not like these other prisoners. The other prisoners, they were probably taking to Rome to be um, killed in the arena, right? That's probably what was going on for them. But Paul, he was a political prisoner. He's going to see Caesar. He's got companions or servants with him. So he has sort of an elevated status. And, and Julius just has some kind of respect for Paul. And he shows that in a bunch of different ways. Uh, he doesn't always follow Paul's advice. Verse 11, he basically is like, Paul, we're, we're going to keep going. And doesn't work out too well for him. Uh, but he generally goes along with what Paul says and, and respects him. And I think we can, we can look at that and say that's God's care and provision for Paul, that even as he's a prisoner, even as he's being unjustly oppressed, uh, God has provided him with somebody who actually takes care of him in many ways, Julius. So third, God provides Paul with Christian community. And this is just a little detail in here, but I love in verse three, it says when they stop in the city of Sidon that, that Paul is allowed the privilege to go spend time with other followers of Jesus. Uh, and there's no other place in the book of Acts that tells us that Paul had ever been to Sidon before, uh, but, but his reputation obviously is pretty large as, as a missionary and as a servant of Jesus. And so when he's in Sidon, he's given the privilege to go see these other believers and there's this relationship that they have. It, uh, Luke says that they, they were friends uh, and, that, and that Paul was allowed to spend time with his friends there. So there's this love and this closeness that comes, right? When we follow Jesus, we're given this privilege of Christian community, and, and many of you have experienced this maybe when you go to another town, you visit another church, you don't know any of those people, and yet you feel a, a closeness to them because, as we sang, we believe in the name of Jesus. We're united and, uh, and brought together in one family in Jesus, and Paul is, he gets to experience this gift God provides Christian community for him along the way 
to Rome. So he's, he's provided with companions, uh, with a generous leader, and with Christian community. That's just three of the ways. I think there's more ways we can see that God provides for Paul on his journey. But there's, there's several ways. And, and I want to, I'm going to do this a little bit differently than I normally do, but try to, to ask, how do we apply this aspect of the passage in, into our lives? Uh, and, and in some ways, the call here is just to trust, right? Trust in God's provision for you, uh, that he knows what you need. And as you follow Jesus, he's going to provide for every need that you have along the way. And, and that's not really something you can do. Like you can't quantify trust. You can't weigh it. You can't hold it. You can't go buy some more. Uh, what's the old adage about trust? It's, <laughs> it's hard to build and it's easy to lose, right? So, so I think learning to trust in Jesus is difficult. And, and so that's one thing we can apply, we can try to do. But I think there's, in another way, there's a tangible way that we can apply what we see in this passage. And that is to to build and to strengthen friendships. Um, Paul had a history with Luke and with Aristarchus, right? They had a relationship. They were friends. They served Jesus together, but more than just working alongside of each other, they, they loved each other. They served with each other. They had this camaraderie, and they built that over years of time. Uh, and, and we know, we've seen Paul. He's had rocky relationships, right, with Barnabas before, Paul could be a hard guy to get along with, but he did build and strengthen his friendships with Luke and Aristarchus and with many other people. Um, I think we can see there's some kind of relationship he builds with Julius there and, and just the way that he interacts with the church in Sidon, that they're called specifically his friends. And I think that's something we should take note of. And and I don't know if you guys have experienced this. Man, the kids are having so much fun today. Um, if you guys want to take a break and go join them for a little bit. <laughs> Friendships are hard to build. Uh, even, even when we are with other Christians, friendship is really, really hard work. And, and many times we use the word friend too lightly. We describe people as friends who we barely even know sometimes because the true nature of friendship is difficult uh, and it requires love and time and sacrifice and it's, it's very difficult. But friendship is one of God's gifts to us. Uh, it's, it's clear, especially through the book of Acts, there are many close friendships that we see that are, that are built and strengthened and also that are fractured. Um, but but God's gift of friendship, it's one of the ways that he provides uh, for us on our journey of following Jesus. And, and I know that's something that we try to do in, in the town church is, is not, just, not just hang out together on Sunday, but try to build friendships and relationships and deep community with each other throughout the course of our lives so that we're spending a lot of time together. Because uh, when it comes to friendships, you don't have to pick quality or quantity. You, you sort of have to do both for deep friendships. You have to spend a lot of time together and, and you have to spend intentional deep time together. And so I think that's our first point of application is that uh, friendship is one of the way God provides for us on our journey, on our walk of following Jesus and that we should build and strengthen the friendships uh, that God puts in our way. And we can follow what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection 
Outdo one another in showing honor. Next, we see God's promises in the storm. We've seen his provision on the journey. Here we see his promises in the storm. And Luke tells us that uh, as the journey goes on, it gets later in the sailing season. And despite his, Paul's warning in verse 10, Julius, the centurion, he says, we're just going to try to chance it. I love the, the risk factor here. He's like, perhaps we'll make it to Phoenix. Uh, it's like, that's a pretty big risk there. You're just, you have 300 people, basically. You're like, perhaps we will make it. Uh, we know that it's a bad idea, but let's just go for it. It's only 40 miles. We can do it. Uh, and things start out well, gentle winds, sounds good, nice sailing. Micah, I'm talking a lot about sailing today. I kept thinking about you. Did I say any sailing terms wrong when I read it? For sale, is that how you say it? For sale, okay. I should have done a little consulting with Micah. Micah's our sailing expert. Um, <laughs> but but as, they're, as they're going along, it starts out well when they leave from Fairhaven. Why would you leave a place called, is it? Fair havens? Why would you leave somewhere like that? I mean, sounds good. Spend some time there. But they leave in uh, a short time after they go, a, basically a, a hurricane-force storm hits them, and it just overwhelms the ship. And all the sailors can do is, is basically give up. They can't fight the wind. They can't beat the sea. They can't navigate uh, because they can't see the stars or the sun, which, which at this time in history is the only form of navigation that sailors have, essentially. Uh, so it says in verse 15 that they give way to it. They just, they throw up their hands. We, we can't do anything. We just have to wait. We just have to see what happens. And they start throwing cargo overboard. They're hoping to lighten the ship so it's less likely to roll over. And this goes on for two weeks. Two weeks. Like, I've been out in a boat in like mildly uncomfortable uh, conditions and it's terrifying. Uh, it's like I'm in the giant ocean and I just want to get back to shore as soon as possible. And these guys are out there for two weeks in this horrendous storm. The situation is, is grim and it just sounds awful. It sounds really awful. It sounds like a miserable experience. It's so bad, Luke tells us in verse 20 that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Like, that's the last journal entry, right? <laughs> all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And you're like, we found this 100 years later next to a skeleton. Uh, and that's, that's where these people are at on this boat. Now, where is our man Paul in all of this? Well, he decides it's time to get up and make a speech because he's Paul and he loves to, to make speeches. Verse 21, he just, he, he sees this as an opportunity, couldn't pass it up. Uh, and, and he starts out, kind of sounds like he's saying, I told you so, which is a very Paul thing to do. I, I did give you a warning, uh, but he's, really, he's not trying to be spiteful. What he's trying to do is say, I want you to listen to what I have to say next. I had something valuable to say before, I have something valuable to say now. He says, I want you to listen because God has given me a promise. God has given me a promise. He says in verse 22, I urge you to take heart, be encouraged, be, be confident, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel 
of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God has graciously given all the lives of the people who are with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that, they will, that it will be exactly as I have been told. Helps us to remember, why is Paul going to Rome? He's not going there ultimately because the Jews are mad at him. He's not ultimately going there because the Romans don't know what to do with him in, a, in their justice system. He's not even really going there because he appealed to Caesar. He's going there because this is God's will for him. This has been God's will for him. We've, we've seen it from years before that Paul had, God had revealed to Paul that he was going to go to Rome and it was, it was a goal that he had. It was, it was a direction that he was heading. So even in the storm, Paul is on God's mission and he has this confidence because God has come to him again in the storm and reminded him, making this promise, I'm at work here, even in this storm. Things, everything that's going on, everything that's going on, I am with you. You are not alone. You have my word. You're going to make it. And not just you, but everyone who's on this boat is going to live. And you hear in his voice, he's confident and he's bold in the way that he speaks to them. I have a promise. I, the God that I belong to, the God that I worship because he is worthy, he gave me his word. And you don't need to be afraid. You can take courage. And he says, this is, this is no two-bit God, right? This is not a little G God. This is the God who made the wind and the waves. And he's the one who gave me this promise. So don't be afraid. Take courage. He calls them to hope. Now we have to ask again, how do we apply this to, to our lives? And I think it's simply to remember God's promises and then to live out of those promises and, and to speak out of those promises, right? We, we have to, um, to declare those things in, in many ways. And, and you can't live with confidence and without fear unless you have something to base that confidence in. Like you can only fake it for so long. But if you're in a storm, if you're in suffering, if you're walking through the hardest thing you've ever done, you can't fake it anymore. But Paul says there's confidence here, and my confidence has a basis. I have God's promise for my life and for, for you. And so we also have God's promises again and again in the scriptures. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll meet your every need. Here's a promise from Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And if you believe that promise, and, and that's one of how many promises that God has given us, if you, if you put those promises before you again and again, you're going to be able to live and speak boldly out of 
hope and confidence, not in who you are and how you're going to deal with that suffering, that struggle you're going through, but in God, the one who's made the promise to you, the one who is steadfast, the one who never fails. As Tony Marita says, we fight fear, and you could, you could insert any other thing there. We fight anxiety, we fight doubt, we fight whatever it might be by remembering God's faithful promises. So we've seen God's provision for our journey God's promises in the storm, and next we see God's presence in the shipwreck. Now, even though Paul has been given this promise by God, no one's going to die, you notice that little thing he says there in verse 26, and we have to run aground on some island. Uh, And he just throws it in there. He's like, don't be afraid. Everything's going to be fine. We still have to crash, though, and the boat is going to be destroyed. Um, Not sure what happens in the gap there, but we'll figure it out as we go. And, and they still have to go through this terrifying experience of running, the ship running aground. And I think we could take something here is that, that God, his promises don't mean that we will never suffer, but they, they do mean that we will never suffer without him, without his presence with us, that he's not going to abandon us in the moment of our suffering, that he's always with us, and I think we see this in a surprising way in in this passage. So they're just about to run aground. Uh, Paul gathers everyone together, the sailors, the soldiers, the prisoners, and he and again he's going to speak to them all. Uh, and and th- they have been in this storm for two weeks. They haven't eaten much. If they've eaten anything, it's not staying down uh, because they're on the ocean. And and whatever. They've just been in constant danger for two weeks. Like, you are afraid at that point. Like, you, you don't have much left. And, and Paul says, I urge you to take some food. Take some food. We're about to go swimming. Uh, for, it will give you strength. And you're not going to, not a hair will perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, I love this moment because it's really practical, right? Paul is, is very practical. Sometimes eating a little food can change your whole outlook on things. I know uh, when I go on a long run, uh, and I know that's surprising to some of you, but I do do that, um, the, just eating something, something small, it can take you from the depths of despair to like, oh, I can run all day. I'm ready to go until an hour from now. I need to eat again. You know, if you've ever been hangry, uh, you, you eat something and you feel better and you think, who was that person, right? <laughs> like, man, I was so irrational and I just ate like, you know, something small and it, it showed me how fragile I was. <laughs> just eat a little something. Paul knows that they're about to face a physical challenge and they need nourishment. And, and there's a lot of ways in this passage that Paul is really practical. He's just using wisdom, common sense. Hey, we're going we're gonna to go in the ocean, so we've been weak. We need some nourishment, so eat some food. But, but I think that Luke is also showing us something here that's, that's more than just practical. Um, when we are suffering, when our lives are falling apart, practical tips are not always the most helpful. If you've ever been in a difficult place and 
people suggest practical things to you, it can be really tough. It feels like people are just piling stuff on you, and, I, and you know they want to help you. You know they're trying to ease your suffering, but it can just feel overwhelming, these practical tips. What we really need when we are suffering is we need presence. We need presence. We need the nearness of others, and we really need the nearness of God. And as Paul, as he takes the bread and he gives thanks to God, I mean, you can't help but notice the similarities to the night before Jesus' death, when he shared his last meal with his disciples. He took the cup, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body, which is for you. When Paul gives thanks on the ship in verse 35, when it says he gives thanks, it's the Greek word eucharisteo, and it's That's where we get our word Eucharist, which is another word for the Lord's Supper or communion. And we celebrate communion and remember communion each week together here as as a church family. And and I don't think Paul is leading all these people in in the Lord's Supper or communion uh, because there's only a handful of Christian believers on this boat, most likely. And and the Lord's Supper is clearly something that, that is four followers of Jesus do. It doesn't really make a lot of sense for someone who doesn't follow Jesus to take communion, but what is happening is that Jesus is present with them. He's present with those who are, who are walking, who are about to be shipwrecked here, and, and Jesus is still present with us today. Even when things are falling apart, even when a storm is raging around us, we're about to run a ground. Jesus is with us. Theologian John Polhill, he says about this passage, the meal had a meaning for Paul and the other Christians that it could not have had for the pagans. Their Lord continued to be present with them. He was present in that time of particular need. For them, the meal was more than needed sustenance. It reassured them of their Lord's presence to deliver them. So we not only have God's provision and his promises, we also have his presence. Now what's our application here? How do we, how do we take this and try to, try to build something into our life that, that matches what we're learning here? And, and I think we can sum up the application here in one word, stay, stay. I think the call for us is to stay, to abide. Now, here's the distinction Our call isn't to stay in the circumstance. If we have the ability to remove ourselves from a difficult circumstance, it doesn't mean we have to stay in that circumstance, but what it means is we have to stay with the one who is present with us in the circumstance. We have to stay and abide with Jesus. And you see the sailors, right? They try to take the lifeboat away. And Paul, because Paul is like a veteran sailor, he's been on boats all the time, he's probably the most accomplished traveler on the boat, and he's like, these guys are going to bail on us. They're going to try to take the lifeboat in, it's way safer on the lifeboat, and he says, they have to stay, right? And do you, do you, I see that tendency in my own life, right? I feel the temptation to hit the eject button when things get difficult, when things get uncomfortable, when things get hard or scary, But if Jesus is present with us in our most difficult moments, we stay with him. We abide with him. We don't try to 
We don't have to try to come up with our own solution. We don't have to try to fix it on our own, in our own strength. We follow Jesus. We abide in him, in his love, as he said in John chapter 15. And when Jesus is talking about abiding in his love, he says, the way you display staying with me, abiding in me, is through obeying my commandments. Now, you, you might be in a place where you're feeling that temptation to bail, to, to eject, to escape from the difficulty that you're walking through right now. And, it, you know, it could be in, in your marriage. Things are difficult right now, and you're feeling that just that friction and that difficulty, and, and it's easy to think, how could I get out of this without doing the hard work of, of walking through what it would take to, to make this work? Maybe it's, it's loving other people. <laughs> we feel this all the time <laughs> in, when, when we become uh, foster parents a couple years ago, there's this temptation all the time to just stop. And it's, it's not because of the kids. It's not because of any one thing. It's just hard. And we've said, Dallas and I, you know, we can't do this anymore. We can't. And we feel that temptation to hit the eject button. Maybe in the demands of a church community, right? There's difficulty because we're called to give our time and to give our love, to serve and to give in, in so many ways. Maybe it's your faith, it's following Jesus. You feel the pull to, to just give up on your faith because it's hard to follow Jesus. So here, hear this. He is with you. Stay. Abide in him and you'll be able to withstand even the falling apart moments. We have God's provision. We have his promises and we have his presence. And lastly, we see God's purposes in our rescue. Now, just as Paul has said, just as God had promised him, all 276 people on board the ship, they make it safely to shore on this island of Malta. They're alive. God is faithful. The people on the, the island, they immediately jump in, start taking care of these refugees for several months until they are ready to get on another ship, which takes them to the Italian coast. They make their way up to the great city of Rome. And in Rome, Paul is put under house arrest until the time of his appeal before Caesar. And, and we're just about at the end of Acts here, of, of this story. But, but I want us to focus for a moment on God's purposes at work in Paul's life, in his rescue, in his arrival in Rome, ever since uh, Paul was in the city of Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 19, the Lord has been leading Paul to this moment. And really, it was before that moment. That's just when Paul realized that's what he was, what God was going to do. So even through two and a half years of imprisonment that has no basis in justice, Paul 
has never lived outside of God's sovereign will for him. He has been exactly where God has wanted him to be. God has a plan and a purpose for him, and that's, that will be worked out in his life, and it's working itself out here as he comes into Rome. And the same is true for each one of us, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And, and so along the way, as we follow Jesus, we're given purpose in our everyday lives, as, as mundane and ordinary as they may feel. But, but our purpose is ultimately is to love and serve God and to love and serve other people. And I think the way that we can apply this final point is to serve. That's our, that's our point of application, that when we follow Jesus, we're called into a life of loving service. And, and Paul gives an, account, uh, an example of this. As soon as they're unsure, everyone's accounted for, everyone is safe, Paul starts serving he starts getting wood for the fire. Like, what a normal, ordinary thing that is. Well, people are cold and wet. We're going to get some wood for the fire. And he just, like, he just survived a shipwreck and has been in a storm for two weeks, and he's like, we need wood for the fire. He just, like, his mentality is to serve. He's not above serving in this really ordinary way. He's wet. He's cold, too. He's still a prisoner, but he serves. He's gathering wood for the fire. And I think that's just such a small but beautiful moment of, of what it's like to follow Jesus, of what it looks like to serve Jesus. So much of what we do is so ordinary and it doesn't look like anything, but it's just this mentality of saying, I'm not going to focus necessarily on what, <laughs> what I'm walking through, what I just survived, but I can still serve. I can still uh, bless other people, even in my own hardship. And, and Paul just, he just goes back to it. Even he gets bit by a snake. Everyone thinks he's going to die and he's just kind of like, whatever, going to go keep getting some more firewood. Uh, he, just, he just goes on, does what he needs to do. And this service continues. He's in a waiting period, right? He knows he's going to Rome. He's still a captor but he sees need in the place that he's in. There's a, a man who's sick. I'm gonna go pray for him. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray that he's healed. And then there's more people who need min the ministry of Jesus and Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. They're just doing the work of Jesus in really ordinary, unseen ways as they go through this really hard thing, right? Like, we're shipwrecked, we're waiting to go to our next destination. But even in that place of being in between, they still do ministry. They still serve Jesus and other people along the way. And as Paul goes to Rome, his mentality is outward facing. He's meeting with other Christians. He is encouraged. They are encouraged. It's a beautiful thing. This constant pattern of Paul's life, that he serves even as he suffers. He gives even as his own personal freedom has been taken away. And that's our call as we follow Jesus. We look to him. He has rescued us. How did Jesus rescue us? He served us. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus served us, he gave his life for us, and now we belong to him. And so we love and we serve 
other people in a way that reflects what's been done for us. I have been served. I have been loved. And so I can love and serve other people, not out of my own strength, but out of the strength that Jesus gives me. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls, compels, urges us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, you and me, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Serve. Jesus leads us through the storm. He provides for us. He gives us his promise. He gives us his presence, and he fulfills his purpose in us. I'll close with a poem from John Greenleaf Whittier. Here in the maddening maze of things, when tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed ground my spirit clings, I know that God is good. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed he will not break, but strengthen and sustain. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you do not abandon us, that as we are on our way of following you, as we endure storms, even as things fall apart and our life looks like a wreck, it is a wreck, and we need rescue, that you meet us in every place along the way, and that we're never outside of your care. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to bear this alone, that Jesus, you went through the greatest storm to bear our sin and our shame so that we could live and walk with you, that we could belong to you. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus, and thank you that we can respond and remember that today as your followers. Help us to to listen to your call, to obey you, to walk with you, to abide with you, even when it is difficult. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.